If you're like me, keeping up with the news has become a real pain. All the best news sites are locked behind paywalls and the free stuff is just clickbait and fake news that no one should waste time on. Imagine an app where you can get unlocked access to reliable news sites, an app that filters out fake news and clickbait, but still shows you every story from multiple perspectives to counter bias, where good news is in positive stories or highlighted so you don't become despondent, and where journalists dig through the news from around the world to find stories you wouldn't normally see. That's what an innovative Australian startup called Inkle, I-N-K-L, has come up with. Inkle.com has signed partnerships with over 100 news sources like The Economist, The Atlantic, Bloomberg, and created a unique system combining journalists and algorithms to create a best of news feed. The service unlocks more than $12,000 of premium news for 100 bucks a year. And if you go now to Inkle.com backslash Tory, they'll give you an additional 25% discount. So you can get a whole year's worth of headache-free news for just $75. That's INKL.com forward slash Tory. Churches of burning moths, throw your dice, now your destiny's cast. And these seeds of war were planted over centuries past. And the mysteries remain unsolved. Colossal pyramids on Mars, visitors beyond the scriptures of Allah. God is on the side of the ones with money, the large armies. Pray for death amongst these brainwashed zombies. Society is brainwashed. Bitch, you can't see what I can see. That's right. There's a few things we have to address. When I'm in the streets, I always remain cautious. It's good. Yeah, November 5th, 2001, less than two months after 9-11 occurred. The infamous William Cooper was murdered, ex-naval intelligence officer. But now author of Behold the Pale Horse, he paid the cost. I can't say that I agree with everything that he wrote, but I admire him for speaking his mind, though. Never holding his tongue for nobody, our society is brainwashed. Guns on each other's faces for the same lies. Same everything and same nothing. Same bullshit materialism. The third world man's luxury. This false flag fuckery. I ain't a blessed junkie. Your lady, your liberty. Can't fuck me. Can't touch me. The black pope, superior general. Tim Oscar riding like a pie roof from Inglewood. Bring the hood up to a hover and mothership. They already make the switch. Um, welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. It's the 21st. Oops. It's the 19th of October, 2021, and Donald Trump still won the 2020 elections, and yet they want us to have elections coming up. But we're not going to talk about that today. I thought we could talk about what's going on. We can talk about what it is that has been going on that you think hasn't been going on, but it's been going on. You're just rebelling right now. And I think it's been orchestrated in this sense because unfortunately, every single time the same script is implemented, people are disappointed when it doesn't work in their favor. And that's because, oh, ye of little faith. Now, faith in what is a good question, right? Faith in what? Faith in people, faith in humanity. And I'm not talking about you having faith. I'm talking about those that can speak, have little faith in humanity. And I think a lot of you right now have proven the majority of them wrong, and they're not 
that many of them. You are many, they are few. But in order for you to understand what will be happening soon, it is important to understand how history is skewed. And I think that would be interesting to find out, you know, how is it that Australia was discovered in 1606? Like, what happened, right? And while many of you say, oh, this is the worst day in history, this is the worst year, there's actually been a year that everyone calls the worst year, but was it really the worst year? Because it also happened in 1606, right? Okay. And it happened in the 1400s. It's like almost every 2,300 years, 2,300 or so years, it happens again and again and again. Did you know that there were a ton of Christians that had done the math, that had thought that they understood uh, what was going on and how it was going? They were so on it. They really, really were on it. And they misinterpret things like the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep commandments of God and have testimony of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Many will tell you that the dragon obviously is evil and the woman is the church and that's the remnant of the seed. Nope, 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 nope. What's the hot topic for everyone these days? For a long time. What is the hot topic for everyone these days? What is it that they're dying to keep doing? What is it that they were dying to keep doing? Oh, we need, how, how dare Donald Trump as president say no to aborting babies? We need it to make vaccines. What a loser he is. And there he is writing an EO. We're going to be using chicken eggs if we need to make new stuff. You know, that doesn't work for gene therapy, by the way. <laughs> so it's not a vaccine. Okay, Vaccines are cultivated, right? And you get a little bit of a dead virus. We don't have a dead virus. We have a gene therapy. <laughs> you know, but they've changed the definition. How many years have I been saying, well, there we go again, changing definitions. So they changed the definition of a vaccine. And now they need certain cells in order to cultivate, which are human cells, which are the aborted cells, which are, you know, what a coincidence, right? We're talking Henrietta Lacks, and then suddenly her family pops up and says whatever. And that was done on purpose. I could have educated you on Henrietta Lacks a long, long time ago, long, long time ago, but it wasn't important. Why? Because then you wouldn't see. I mean, you got to do the math. Uh, when is it impossible? When is it mathematically impossible? You know what's mathematically impossible? That for the next two weeks, every single article that I have published on Tory says, from the day that I incepted it up until now, will be coming to light. Things that nobody wanted to talk about. Like, you know, someone found those DMs that I put out there of Adam Waldman. You'll be surprised to see that Ben Stiller was part of that conversation with Christopher Steele, but, you know, whatever, right? Fags. So I think it's very important to be able to be armed with knowledge in order to be able to see things. I really wanted to play 50 cents in the club song, but it was important that I just share it on the channel. For those of you that are not on Telegram and hear me on iTunes or iHeart, 
I shared a song from like 2009 and it was remastered in 2009 of 50 cent who in a Trump economy was worth a dollar today's economy with the selected administration. He's like five cent, but he put on a production that in the club that while you're hearing, it, it's got a nice rhythm, right? You're like, yeah, in the club, you know, and it's a birthday song. So happy birthday to everyone who has birthdays today. And our own Dianon has his birthday today. And one of his um, offspring do too. So happy birthday. But go shorty. It's your birthday. We're going to, okay, watch the video. It shows you that everything is constructed in a lab. That he's a robot and he's just been trained to do so. And when he goes into the club, the club is like right next to the lab. And they're studying him. Again, <laughs> it's like mind blown. Mind blown that Nicki Minaj was awake. Hence why nobody liked her. But you know, you get swayed. If you listen to that song, he tells you everything you need to know. Not only that, watch him, okay? Watch him sing. He looks like Blink if you need help, okay? You need to see it to understand it. See it, listen, and it makes sense because your ears and your eyes have now been trained to be able to see past things, past things. So that's number one uh, that I wanted to put out there. I need you guys to just kind of take a look and see uh, what exactly is being told and shown. Uh, another thing that uh, people don't see are all of these weird bells. What bells? Well, I'm, I mean, they're probably going to be coming up uh, very, very soon for many to, to see. Bells, bells. How's this? Let's ring a few bells. Let's remind ourselves a few things, okay? I will show you a video clip of Selected Biden from the 19th of February, 2021. Now I want you guys to listen to it, pay attention to it, and then I'll show you a video from today. Here we go. We are in the midst of a fundamental debate about the future and direction of our world. We're at an inflection point. Between those who argue that given all the challenges we face from the fourth industrial revolution to the global pandemic, that autocracy is the best way forward, they argue. And those who understand that democracy is essential, essential to meeting these challenges, Historians are going to examine and write about this moment as an inflection point, as I said. And I believe that every ounce of my being, that democracy will and must prevail. We must demonstrate that democracy can still deliver for our people in this changed world. Democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it, fight for it, strengthen it, renew it. We have to prove that our model isn't a relic of history. It's the single best way to revitalize the promise of our future. Hmm. That's interesting, right? That's super interesting. That is super duper interesting. There you've got some Virginia voters sounding the alarm as Democrats. No, we can't do that. So what happened nine months later? Well, let's listen to Joe Biden tell us. What the fuck? What is this bullshit? There's a great debate going on whether or not in the 21st century 
in the second quarter of the 21st century, can democracies function with things moving so rapidly? And I can tell you, a couple of the folks I've had a lot of, spent a lot of time with uh, of late, Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi Jinping. I'm sorry, who? They really believe that uh, autocracies are the only way forward because they can act quickly and decisively. It's not a joke. And we're seeing effects of this around the world. For those of you who don't know what an autocracy is, it is the government with one person in absolute power. Do you know who else had an autocracy? Hitler. Yeah, but so does England, so does Russia, so does... That's what Obama wanted. Remember, he wanted to talk to someone in his earpiece. Huh. That's funny. In nine months, that tune soon changed. It just it was another drum that was beating totally. It's like, what's going on here? Wait a minute. Um, How is this happening? Well, let's look at what happens when there's trouble in paradise. Like in the Maldives, we talked about it very little at some point uh, in the past years. But here is where a guy actually breaks down the difference between democracy versus autocracy in the Maldives. Take a listen. Hey, it's Lou, and some wild shit is going down in the Maldives. The country, a string of some 1,200 picture-perfect islands in the Indian Ocean, is frequently described as heaven on earth. But Maldivian politics? They're an authoritarian hellscape. A brazenly corrupt government uses gangs for hire to terrorize critics. Dissidents are arbitrarily jailed or disappeared. Attending a protest, speaking your mind, practicing journalism, those are all very dangerous endeavors. The Oh, shit. Wild shit. Kind of sounds like the stuff we're going through. Oh, dear. Let's see. What else? The irony is, this is a country that pushed out a dictator and tried building a democracy just a decade ago. Unfortunately, that experiment failed. Can it be tried again? Or will this paradise descend further into tyranny? In July 1965, the Maldives gained independence from the British. Thirteen years later, an Islamic scholar named Mamoun Gayoum became president. Gayoum would become the longest-serving leader in Asia, winning six unopposed elections. He also survived a coup attempt in the 1980s. Gayoum improved the economy and turned the Maldives into one of the premier tourist destinations in the world. But he's also been described as a dictator who ruled with an iron fist. Critics claim his 30-year reign was characterized by cronyism, nepotism, corruption, and the stifling of political dissent. So we talked about this before, how people that were actually going for their country first were painted as dictators. Iron fist. You hear the same speech going again and again. Remember? Remember? how that goes and how, you know, uh, Chavez and all of them were like, yo, uh, we don't need this globalist stuff. And then they become poisoned with it. But are all of them poisoned? I mean, I'm just confused. Like in the Maldives, up until they removed him, they were pretty fruitful, uh, very good economy, had practically all the rights anybody could need. And yet they didn't have a problem with human trafficking and drugs. And apparently that guy was ruling with an iron fist. So they had to get rid of him. I mean, America helped a lot. We have to get rid of him, said Obama. We have to get rid of them, said Bush. We have to get rid of them, said the UN. So weird that, you know, that they, that they did that. <laughs> it's like the Maldives. And then 
you know, obviously, <laughs> well, let's just continue this so you can see the commonalities on, oh, wasn't the Haitian guy a dictator too? Just saying. Critics were exiled. Others were just plain old tortured. Some were handcuffed to coconut trees and covered in sugar water. Ants would eat them. Simultaneously, Gayoum bought loyalty through a patronage system. He filled the government with folks who he could control, who wouldn't challenge his power or prosecute his corruption. J.J. Robinson, author of the fascinating book, The Maldives, Islamic Republic, Tropical Autocracy, told me despite this intimidation and manipulation, Gayoum was seen as a father figure, an authority on all things Islam who was almost above reproach. His reputation was nearly godlike. Keep in mind, this is in a very strict Islamic society where booze is as illegal as heroin and where extramarital sex is punished with flogging. Well, not for the tourists, but that's a contradiction tolerated for the sake of the economy. Anyway, Gayoum's status as a religious scholar made his autocratic tendencies tolerable. But that changed in 2003 when a 19-year-old prisoner was killed by a guard. His mother displayed his brutalized corpse to the public. Here was undeniable proof of the regime's cruelness. So you want to know who showed the corpse? Wait, to the whole world, but not the Maldives, okay? I want you to take a wild freaking guess. Take a wild guess and tell me, yep, Arab Spring, see, you guys see it. But tell me, who was it that showcased it? Because uh, I was there. Who was the one that videotaped it? Voice of America, of course. <laughs> Voice of America. Voice of America was the first one to report that shit. Voice of America spread that shit outside of the United States so it can come back to the United States. So let me let me let me just make sure that people understand something carefully. I'm not saying that he wasn't a dictator. I'm not saying he wasn't or was none of that. Because we all know that if you stay in one position for a very long time, you do get corrupt, you get comfortable, and you get drunk on power. Okay? But then we have to think and sit and, and just observe. Hold on. So in this Islamic nation where they don't really use like coffins like that, but okay, and they don't photograph or videograph their dead, okay, um, some youth pass away. Remember, it's the youth and the elderly, right? Right. That's how you do the Arab Springs, right? So they videotaped it live on TV to this guy that everyone thought was like a fatherly figure, but he tortured people too. And I'm not saying he didn't. Okay. I'm not saying he did it. He, that he did it or that he didn't do it. I'm just saying all of this is going on. The people love him. And then for some reason, this comes out and then the whole world is involved and says, we must intervene. The violent suppression of subsequent protests underscored that point. Then in 2004, a tsunami dealt a major blow to the country. The economic destruction totaled over 60% of GDP. Gayoum was vulnerable. Maldivians wanted change. Pressure was coming from the international community too. So Gayoum offered some reforms, a new constitution was written. But more importantly, Gayoum promised that the 2008 election would be free and fair. A journalist and activist named Mohammed Nasheed became the chief opposition candidate. Nasheed had actually been arrested 23 times under Gayoum for critical coverage. He had been tortured and spent 18 months in solitary confinement. 
He got his revenge at the ballot box. His successful campaign finally toppled the autocrat. The world celebrated the fact that the Maldives had embraced democracy. The international accolades continued to roll in as Nasheed introduced universal health care, set up a pension system, and offered welfare to single parents and the elderly. He also revamped the tax code and created laws that allowed more people to profit from the tourism industry. Nasheed was also a big climate change advocate. He held a cabinet meeting underwater to bring attention to how the issue was impacting the low-lying and very vulnerable Maldives. Money for environmental projects started pouring into the country. Good thing, because the old regime had depleted the state coffers on their way out the door. Wait a minute. So let's get this straight. Okay, let's get this straight. This child dies for the first time ever in a strict Islamic country. His funeral was aired, right? And then a tsunami hit, conveniently eradicated them and they and the global scene un right human rights all of them said we're not giving you shit unless you fix and change what you're doing (laughs) oh my gosh so then this guy comes in that's been arrested 23 times saying we need to join the un we need to be part of all of this we need to take their money we need to be part of the team we need to this right they convince him to write something to do something and then they run him right and he wins. And then uh, suddenly these um, strict Muslims in burqas go underwater to sign agreements because, you know, Green New Deal, right? Because that's exactly what everyone thinks about when it's, let me reinforce the economy of my nation, which means give me money. See, when people give you money, they expect shit back, right? You don't take money from the UN or all these organizations for nothing. They're just not going to say, here, take it. Maybe you can invest in hemp rather than paper or here, take it. It's totally free. No strings attached, but you know, I'm going to be building your solar panels. Oh, and I'm going to own your ports in exchange for that, but you're going to make it green. So it's going to be great. See, people don't understand that when you take money from an organization, it owns you literally ask Greece. They own fuck all. The last thing they own is some ancient gold that they have somewhere in a bank that I'm pretty sure Goldman Sachs has been eyeballing like I would when I'm hungry and there's sushi in a window, nice Toro sitting there on a plate. That's how they're looking at their gold. (laughs) So just, just so you understand, so they toppled something that was a tyrant to create something that's a democracy but and it sounds like a liberal wet dream oh it sounds fantastic let's see how that turns out or actually gayum and his cronies never really left they lurked in the background nasheed sensed this later writing dictatorships don't always die when the dictator leaves office long after the revolutions powerful networks of regime loyalists can remain behind and can attempt to strangle their nascent democracies. Patricia Gossman, a researcher at Human Rights Watch, told me Gayoon's puppets still held many government posts, especially in the uber-powerful judiciary. Most of the judges had no training. A quarter had criminal records. 60% had less than a grade 7 education. Their only qualification was that they would do whatever Gayoon ordered. Nasheed never succeeded at getting rid of them. Plus, Nasheed's coalition didn't have a majority in parliament, so his agenda was undermined there. 
Now, when Nasheed did try to tackle some of the entrenched powers by imprisoning a chief judge of the criminal court credibly accused of abusive office, well, the old regime reared its ugly head and all hell broke loose. Police joined a violent protest against Nasheed. They distributed riot gear to other demonstrators, so the tear gas from the military defending Nasheed was ineffectual. Besides, some of the military... Wait, so it's like if you, like, arrest uh, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, right, for alleged stuff, right? So then is that like equivalent are they trying to lay the map out was that a test run now one has to think is it him or would they be going off to clarence thomas because mm. if clarence thomas or alito were arrested i'm just saying right or tried to be removed you know like the biden administration is trying to do do you think that the police and the military and the people would just sit by and watch pay attention I just want you to have ideas and think about it. I want you to see the parallels on what's coming. Switch sides and actually joined in on the protest. It was a chaotic, confusing scene. Nasheed was trapped inside a military base. Wait a minute. You mean the police said you overthrew someone wrongfully and we're upset and we're siding with him. And so the guy that the UN put up there, they were chasing him and he was stuck in like a room okay a faction of the protesters went to the state broadcaster and switched the feed to a private pro station this morning police took over the state broadcaster others went to the national museum and destroyed artifacts associated with the maldives pre-islamic history the items destroyed include one-of-a-kind buddhist statues from the 12th century before islam came to the islands some consider such things idols. President Nasheed was dragged in front of TV cameras and forced to resign. He later said he did it under duress. No shit. His vice president, who had become a bit of a malcontent frenemy, was sworn in. There's evidence that the VP knew about Nasheed's forced resignation in advance, but he played dumb, claiming to be shocked and merely ready to step up and serve his country. His wife wasn't so surprised. She had gotten her hair done that morning for a mysterious special occasion. Many people in the Maldives saw this as a pre-planned coup, not a spontaneous uprising to defend a dubious judge. There were protests. Those were met with state-sanctioned violence. Democracy was fading fast. But there was a glimmer of hope. About a year after Nasheed's resignation, the Maldives were due for their next presidential election, and Nasheed sought to regain his seat. His successor, the former VP, was deeply unpopular, so his main opposition was Gayoom's half-brother, Abdullah Yamin. The election was suspicious. The first round, which Nasheed won handily, was invalidated by the corrupt as always courts. That created a bunch of controversies and a bunch of... <laughs> Guess what machines they use with the invalidation where the UN select one. I did take a wild guess of delays. One of the delays was caused by someone slipping laxatives into the parliament's coffee. Eventually, Yamin and Nasheed go head-to-head -head in a runoff. In his book, Robinson describes Yamin buying votes. His supporters would literally hand out cash. Voters held out for higher and higher bribes. Yamin also painted Nasheed as a bad Muslim, a secularist influenced by foreigners bent on undermining Islam. At the end of the day, after all these dubious campaign irregularities, Yamin won. A Gayoom family member was back in power. And once again, he turned the Maldives into an autocracy with a well-connected, got rich, 
and the citizenry got repressed. Amnesty International said human rights in the country have been in a free fall. Ahmed Thalal, a program coordinator at Transparency Maldives, told me Yamin controls parliament so he can tweak laws and amend the constitution to suit his needs. This gives the administration the facade of legality and legitimacy, but they really use state institutions to execute their own self-dealing agenda. Oh my gosh. Gosman told me the regime uses intent. Oh my gosh, doesn't that sound like what Biden's doing right now? I'm just like, so, whoa, we should just slot in words like Biden regime, Biden regime, as he's speaking. Intentionally broad and vaguely worded laws to arrest, intimidate, and imprison critics. Negatively influencing the government or state, whatever oh. the hell that means, is defined as terrorism. Fight to assemble has been deteriorated. Oh. At one protest, according to Alex. Oh, you mean like how moms and dads aren't allowed to go to school boards? How you're not allowed to protest, you need to file like a, a permit. And if you're not Black Lives Matter, if you're not going to torch shit the way they want to, then that's a problem. But don't worry. Now we got the cover coming. So you're going to see riots like nobody's business soon. They're already organizing the left. And you have to ask yourself why. Boy, 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 it's going to be massive. Allegations in the Human Rights Watch report, police move their barricade behind law-abiding protesters and then arrested the protesters for supposedly crossing said barricade. Yemen's government has also jailed opposition leaders. Ten of the country's 16 political parties have been shut down. Former President Nasheed was arrested and sentenced to 13 years in prison on politically motivated charges. He sought refuge in the UK, where Attorney Amal Clooney represented him. Then there's the violence. Robinson told me a lot of the state's brutality has been contracted out to street gangs who originally specialized in the drug trade. Now they do Yamin's dirty work. One gang. Wait a minute. You mean like MS-13? Okay. Just trying to draw parallels here, you guys. Set fire to a TV station critical of the regime. Journalists have been threatened with machetes. Gossman told me all this is done. Wait, weren't the MS-13 chopping people up with machetes? I'm just saying. With complete impunity. With Yamin's protection, the gangs never get punished. The law told me the connection between the gangs and the ruling party is totally brazen. The violent enforcers appear on stage at campaign rallies. They participate in photo ops. No one tries to hide it. In fact, one of Yamin's former vice president. Whoa, shoot. Photo ops. No one's hiding it. They're threatening people. <laughs> Antifa, MS-13, Sunrise Movement. You don't name all these stupid little factions. Like, what's going on? President asserted in text that he was the boss of all gangs in the Maldives. That VP also ran a corruption scheme dubbed the Bro Economy. The con was simple. As Wait, you mean like Pelosi runs her own economy? <laughs> the Polo Economy? The you're my friend, so you get economy? You mean like the one that every single congressman and senator partakes in okay let's just run the parallels because we're learning here it's outlined in a stunning al jazeera documentary and a brand new report from the organized crime and corruption reporting project yamin's intermediaries would sell maldivian islands to resort developers and simply pocket the cash money that was supposed to go to the state instead went to oh no that kind of sounds like what hunter biden was doing on behalf of joe biden in regards to our energy in the united states and around the world Huh, so weird. Yamin and his cronies. The scam pulled in nearly $80 million. For the president, it is not, I mean, it's difficult to hear <laughs> But Yamin eventually became deeply paranoid. That's not a surprise. 
This is a guy who reportedly has practitioners of black magic working for him. So after a small explosion on his boat, probably an accident, since international investigators found no evidence of a bomb, Yamin accused the bro economy VP of an assassination attempt. That guy was jailed. Other ministers were replaced or arrested. All this got a little too much, even for the corrupt judiciary. Whether or not they sold their allegiance to a different political party is a topic of speculation in the Maldives. But whatever the case, in February 2018, the judiciary ruled that political prisoners should be set free. Yamin was not happy about this. He declared a state of emergency and arrested the offending judges. His police force blocked rival politicians from entering parliament, thereby preventing legislative reforms. He even jailed his half-brother, Gayoom. Yes, the former dictator was put in prison. The two autocrats, longtime family rivals, had a falling out over how the government accepted bids for the sale of islands. The UN said all these moves were tantamount to an all-out assault on democracy. Now, the state of emergency was eventually lifted, but Yamin has kept a tight grip on the levers of the government. The law told me he now operates with complete impunity. All checks and balances have been eliminated. Meanwhile, Islamic extremism is flourishing in the country, where the constitution requires every citizen to be a Muslim. By some accounts, the Maldives send more fighters per capita to Syria and Iraq than any other country. A bunch of Maldivians recently held an elaborate reenactment of 9-11 in which a model plane on a zip line crashed into a Mach Twin Tower, which was then lit on fire. Look, it's all one twisted, crazy, weird, and very corrupt situation. And one you're not going to read about on tourism brochures. For those on vacation, ignorance is bliss. And I haven't even touched on the global grand game dynamic. Through their One Belt, One Road initiative, China keeps pouring more and more money into the country for strategic purposes. Gossman told me the Chinese simply turn a blind eye towards all their human rights abuses. Meanwhile, India is getting nervous that the Chinese are making inroads into a neighboring country that they once heavily influenced. So the Maldives are also a pawn in a bigger game. And in this complex environment. On September 23rd, the presidential election was held. All the experts I spoke to said they were not expecting the election to be free or fair. They all suspected that Yamin would somehow lie, cheat, and steal his way to another repressive presidential term. And in fact, on the night before the vote, the police raided the campaign headquarters of Yamin's biggest rival. That's Ibrahim Muhammad Soli. Meanwhile, several international observers who were supposed to monitor the legitimacy of the election couldn't enter the Maldives because they were never issued visas. The fix seemed to be in. But in a jaw-dropping turn of events, solely won. Voters pushed out, you mean, the autocrat. The overwhelming advantages he had, including the incumbency and control over the state's institutions, including the impunity and shamelessness to intimidate and harass opponents, those weren't enough. When it mattered most, Maldivians chose democracy. It was a type of pleasant surprise that both rattled my cynicism and represents a major victory for freedom and human rights. Questions still linger about the transition from Yamin's autocratic regime to the newly elected one. Will Soli's reform efforts be plagued by the same government holdovers that ultimately brought down Nasheed? Well, let's see how they're doing on COVID. Let's like let's just talk about it a bit. So through the beginning of this um, pandemic, right, uh, the Maldives have actually had 86,324 
cases and only 239 deaths. In fact, the Maldives are issuing vaccination cards because they're supposedly vaccinating the people, but the rest of the world doesn't want to recognize it because they're saying uh, just because they're getting a vaccination card doesn't mean that they're getting it from the Maldivian health authorities as proof of vaccination. So their health protection agency hasn't made any official statement on that matter yet because apparently the rest of the world doesn't trust that they're giving uh, COVID vaccines. So they're trying to force them to get onto uh, COVAX, the global access system in the Maldives. And the Ministry of Health has decided to um, sit and discuss ICD-11 coding um, last month so they can tell them how they can put that information in to satisfy the world order. So COVAX is the first delivery of COVID-19 to the Maldives. Um, and that is how people can travel and how they do it. But the rest of the world doesn't trust them. Therefore, people from Maldives can't really travel because their COVID cards aren't recognized in other nations. Therefore, they are forcing them to take the vaccine, even though they accepted a bunch of Pfizer. No one's trusting them. Huh. I see. Pretty weird. It is pretty, pretty, pretty weird. Um, so I wanted us to see you know, who rules? What are governments? So you can understand what kind of government you live in. We've talked about this before. I've told you what kind of government we have without telling you. I just let you decide. Maybe now it's going to be a little bit clearer. Our next section involves who rules. And this took a look at a number of different types of governments that we have around the world. And one of the first ones that we looked at is um, any form of government with a single ruler would classify as an autocracy. Now that's gonna be divided into two main types where one person has all the power with a monarchy and a dictatorship. Gotta start with monarchy. That's the traditional king and queen ruling the country and, and power is inherited through family line, typically the firstborn son. Uh, and a lot of the, you know, if you've taken European history or just know about uh, the kingdoms there, they started out as an absolute monarchy where the monarch would have complete control over the country. Since then, they still have monarchies in Europe, but they're uh, constitutional monarchies, which means that the monarchs are still the head of state. They do a lot of the diplomacy and things like that. However, it's really more of a ceremonial position. There's still a constitution. They still have a republic. They vote for uh, parliament and, and certain representatives, but there still are existing monarchies throughout the world. Dictatorship is the one we're probably the most uh, familiar with, certainly in a uh, sense of uh, former dictator Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, Adolf Hitler, um, Bashar al-Assad of Syria. Uh, Joe Biden. Hear that word dictatorship. Joe One Biden. leader has absolute control over Joe citizens' Biden. lives. Um, the United States ousted Saddam Hussein uh, several Biden. years ago when we invaded Iraq. Um, People now are questioning, you know, if you had to pick a poison, is it better to have a, a Hobbes viewpoint to have someone like that in control? It's not the best, but it keeps stability in the region. Mm -hmm. Or what happens when you try to create a democratic government? And you have different people competing. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, do you have? Would is it better to have a dysfunctional dictatorship that violates people's rights but keeps order? versus a completely dysfunctional democracy that is closer to anarchy. Right. And, uh, and really neither of them are good situations, but uh, the goal is to try to get towards a more 
um, secure in, in orderly state without having to take away everyone's rights. Uh, and that's the goal of each government. Yeah, we'll take a look at democracy now. Um, citizens hold the political power, two types of democracy. We're going to have representative democracy and direct. Okay, representative democracy is the type that we have at our federal level, our national level of government. In that type of democracy, people have the power, but people don't uh, engage in the day-to-day -day run of government or decision-making. They elect representatives to do it for them. But we haven't been able to elect anyone. <laughs> they select them. So I think we have to go back to the whole dictatorship thing, right? 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 Because we're supposed to be electing our leaders to represent our rights and interests in the government, right? Right? But remember, in every single fucked up situation where we have dictatorships from, uh, you know, republics, et cetera, et cetera, going into communism back and forth, right? The courts are always the one that stand their ground and they take the hit, right? Because the courts are the ones that sit on the country's constitutions or rights. Remember that. And even though they believe they are protected by the law, I hope you guys are paying attention that they're looking to fix the court. Kind of sounds like he has everyone in his pocket, just like the previous guy said, to change the laws that they want and how to do it. <laughs> it sounds almost insane because what people don't see is, yeah, it's great to like wipe your debt from education. It's great to have free everything, right? But someone's paying for that shit. That means you're going to end up working whether you like it or not. And you're going to be doing a job you do not want. That's the way it is. So again, a democracy, a representative democracy, means that we're electing leaders. We haven't elected anyone. They've been selected for the past 20 years. So that's well, it's actually more than that. See, we're fighting the new world order, but the new world order is already here. The only thing left is that paper that they call a living document that they can change called the constitution. And what the, the far left insaneists don't see is that this is really bad. You know, I wonder why none of them are asking where all these kids are going, but we'll talk about that later. You know, why in the middle of the night are they transporting unaccompanied minors? Where the fuck are they taking these kids that are undocumented and unaccompanied? But we'll talk about that later. So again, Citizens are supposed to be selecting their leaders, right? We're supposed to be electing them. They're being selected by corporations. The corporations are the ones that the left is supposedly fighting, but they're actually helping them, which is so weird. Psyop. In a country of more than 300 million people, it would just literally be impossible for us to have a direct democracy on a large scale. So instead, what we do is we vote in elections to elect leaders that represent us. The form of democracy that would probably work best in maybe smaller communities. Uh, we showed pictures of ancient Greece where you can have everyone directly participating in making the laws. Now, do we have forms of direct democracy today? Sure. Uh, at the state level, citizens can actually get enough signatures and on a ballot, um, they can come up with their own initiatives where they can vote directly and make the laws directly. So we do see it today. Uh, in various forms and in certain states around the United States. Another example locally in, in the New England region, they have a lot of town meetings still yes. that determine budgets and, and things like that. And every citizen in the town can go to the meeting and has their own particular vote. They don't have a representative at all. They vote themselves in those elections.
Okay, an oligarchy is a small group that has all the power. Uh, an example of that would be a military junta, and that is where small groups of officers take over a government, overthrow the established regime, whether it be a dictatorship or or a democracy or any other type of government, and then they control the country by brute force. They weren't elected. They didn't get it by uh, family t- uh, ties or, or, or heredity. They just take over the country. With We're going to talk about that tomorrow. The military. Yeah, are there any examples of military juntas today? Yes. Well, uh, usually yes. we would see something like this uh, in maybe Central Africa. Um, no, they're more civilized than us. That have broken down, and as a result, it's it's honestly who has the most guns or who has experience in the military and is then taking that uh, for their own personal gain. A group of military officers. Uh, I know in our reading they mentioned the country of Myanmar or Burma for a while had a military junta ruling the country. And uh, you can even maybe make the argument South Africa, not a military junta, but certainly an oligarchy where maybe one group, uh, in the case of different races, having political power oh. uh, for a while during the apartheid. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay, example, an oligarchy doesn't have to be a military junta. There's other types of small group rule in, throughout the world. Okay, uh, theocracy. <clears throat> this is where we involve religion with this type of government. Now, with that, we see uh, mostly Islamic republics uh, typically have theocracies. But just because if you have a theocracy, does that mean that your dictatorship or your monarchy or your democracy, um, does it apply to all of them? Is it just one? Uh, why don't we take a look at where theocracy actually applies? Okay, well, one, one example would be, like uh, you mentioned, uh, Iran. And that is an example of in a republic. They have elections and they have representatives, but they also have Islamic law. Okay, so they are a theocracy. Uh, God's law is actually translated into you know their their civilian law, um, but they still have elections and representatives. It's not a dictatorship or any type. But so just know that theocracies that's where you have the infusion of of, of religion and uh, civilian life and government. Uh, unlike in the United States, where we have a clear separation of church and state, which is debatable, um, which we'll get through uh, later in the year. But uh, for the most part, the United States separates church and state, meaning separates religion from government. Some countries do not. Of course, uh, very similar to a state of nature is anarchy. No government, no control, no one's in charge, complete chaos. Um, there are no rules, no laws. Anarchy is just that. Um, and if any of you watch that show, Sons of Anarchy, um, it's about a motorcycle gang that kind of goes around. So uh, we do see the term now and then. And as far as a country having anarchy as a government, it doesn't exist. Because remember, uh, one of the uh, four parts of a sovereign state is a government. So if there is no government, anarchy doesn't actually qualify as a sovereign state. The only time that you get anarchy is when a state literally breaks down. Like sometimes uh, throughout the last 20 years, parts of Somalia have had no government control. It's been basically anarchy. Uh, in parts of northern Iraq and Syria, once the Syrian regime fell, uh, there's been anarchy in those places. And that's where groups such as ISIS and different al-Qaeda cells have been able to establish controls because there was no government functioning in those regions. If you take a look at this chart here, who rules? This is pretty helpful. Just in the sense of organizing, how can we uh, organize government and what are the different forms? So if you just take a look at this across, we just went through these various forms, but I think this is helpful in a visual sense where you may have no one ruling all the way along the spectrum to many people get to participate. Certainly the United States, we would fall 
onto the right side of that spectrum with a representative democracy and some components of direct democracy here and there. Yeah, one thing to note is that uh, the, the type of government that we left out there was a theocracy, and that's because theocracy could apply to any of these, except for anarchy, okay? But it, we could have a theocracy that has one fewer all. Actually, that's wrong. You can have a theocracy where there's no actual ruler in an anarchist thing because everyone goes off to whatever, you know, god they wish to worship, and that's the ultimate rule. So there. Now, we're going to get a little bit of wooey today, but before we go to a break to shift gears and talk about a little bit of history, um, I want to share um, a video from The Five that happened uh, just a little while ago. So it's only got 66,000 views. I want you guys to understand that uh, what's happening at the border, and, I, and I've said this before, the reason they didn't want the border was because they wanted to collapse the infrastructure from within to say, well, we have a humanitarian crisis, therefore I'm taking your money from your bank. You're all seeing the capital controls coming in. They're limiting how much cash you can take out. I told you this was gonna happen. I actually warned years ago when I was expressing capital controls. So. What can we do to stop it? Well, it would have been nice if people were listening, but you know, this whole movement was hijacked. Therefore, little old me had to come out of the dark. I needed the light for coverage, even though it was early and premature. I was forced and I started to write and I started to talk and I started to make sure I can still do this because when there's a plan for good, there's always a plan by evil for mitigation when they sniff it out. And everything they throw at you that was intended to kill you never did. Therefore, they understand. Oops. So the border was always intended to be used to disable our infrastructure to support it. This is why they keep saying we need to build the infrastructure, build it so they can say we told you so. But it's also to steal money because they're also focused on that geographical area of, you know, Africa and Australia. And you have to think, boy, and that place was just discovered like, you know, 600 years ago. Right. Four, two. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm not doing my math right. Four or five hundred years ago. <laughs> so, um you have to think, sorry, I got distracted. I got some uh, messages. So you have to think the border is being destroyed. The crisis there, they're just passing the buck. Like, I don't know. We have insiders coming out saying they're, they're bringing them in. But then we also have these night flights. I've been watching these for days and it's breaking my heart. I really wish that monkey works. Who's amazing at tracking flights was following this. In the middle of the night, they're moving kids, bouncing them from one airport to the other, one airport to the other, again and again, landing them in Westchester, New York. And then you have to think, like, who's from there? Who has that big property? I did a show on that. You should listen to it. Someone has a lot, a lot. It's a foundation that has a lot, a lot of property out there. So the question is, where are they taking all these children? They're unregistered unaccompanied, where are they taking them? Where are they taking them? That's my heart breaks. 
just thinking as to what there, I know mitigation, hollow deep, they're mitigating. Nothing can stop what's coming. Why? Yet they won't stop. The White House not denying a report that the Biden administration has been secretly flying thousands of unaccompanied migrant children from Texas to the New York City area. The New York Post is calling it Biden's secret flight. That's clever. And it's reporting that 2000 children have been flown from our southern border and sent to drop off points in New Jersey, New York and Connecticut. This seems like a good story for Peter Ducey to ask the White House about. Why is the administration flying thousands of migrants from the border to Florida and New York in the middle of the night? Uh, well, I'm not sure that it's in the middle of the night, but let me tell you what's happening here. Um, it is our 429 a.m. Well, he, very he, early in the morning. Here we are talking on. about early flights earlier than you might like to take a flight. In recent weeks, uh, unaccompanied children pass through the Westchester Airport, which I think is what you're referring to. Who takes an early flight at 2 a.m.? There aren't any fucking flights at 2 a.m., right? Airport shut down at 11. There's no more TSA, so no more flights can leave. Who the fuck takes a flight at 2 a.m.? Hmm? Who takes it? ...and route to their final destination to be unified with their parents or vetted sponsor. And since Democrats love fairness and equity, Ted Cruz has an idea on where to put the massive influx of migrants. Their entire political strategy is based on secrecy. What, what is happening at our southern border is an absolute tragedy. I've introduced legislation today in the Senate. It's called the Stop the Surge Act. Well, what my bill does is it designates new ports of entry so rich Democrats can be sitting there and suddenly see 10, 20, 30, 50,000 illegal immigrants like we're seeing in Texas on a daily basis. And I can just envision them in Nantucket sipping a martini going, Oh, goodness, they want to come to our clubs. They would be horrified. You know, uh, uh, Dana, that was from America's Newsroom. It's oh, a show that's on great job. In the day. Yeah. yeah, okay. This seems like something that we cooked up, which means it's good, <laughs> right? The port of entry at Martha's Vineyard. I swear one of us has probably said this, but it's actually, uh, it's very clever because obviously it's it's made the news, but also it's kind of legitimately correct. Yeah. And, and he makes a point. He made the point this morning that and we've been saying this too. President Biden never gone to the border. Kamala Harris is in charge of the border, doesn't go. And and, and when you let's say that there's a natural disaster, what's one of the first things a president does? Goes down, surveys the damage, sees what is going on so that when he or she eventually gets back, they can say, OK, we need to do the emergency declaration. This is what they're going to need. And I'm going to make sure you make sure that they get everything that they need. They don't they just ignore this. And what's interesting is. President Trump had taken all this grief, right, for all the things, all the things on immigration. And all President Biden had to do was maintain the status quo. Right. But instead, they did a Twitter poll, basically, and made policy based on that. And what you end up having is it's poisoned the well against the need and demand for legal immigration. People who are here waiting in line, trying to get it done legally. And it just has completely made it the issue toxic. The other thing is, because of the Flores Agreement, Stick with me. The children cannot be held, unaccompanied minors cannot be held for longer than 30 days. So Customs and Border Patrol has to send them somewhere. They give them to Health and Human Services, and, and that department takes off. You'll be talking about Pete Buttigieg and where he's been. Where in the world is Secretary Becerra? Mm. It's like, is he in the witness protection they're, program? Yeah, they're all missing. They're all on milk cartons. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Harold, why doesn't the Democrats actually take Cruz at his suggestion or the bill because share the responsibilities. I mean, I think that would make a lot of people happy, uh, uh, Republicans happy, if, if, if it looked like 
the non what do you call the non border privileged share some of the uh, responsibility. So you would presumably still have to put people on a plane. Okay, let's stop this for a second and share another clip. But I wanted to say it's not a new idea to send them into the nice places. I'm going to remind you of something super duper funny. Do you remember? Was it a baseball, not baseball player. It was a basketball player in California who was like rooting for all the migrants. Oh no. For the Antifa people. You remember when he was like, yeah, I'm pro Antifa black lives matter. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then they came into his gated community. Right. And then he was screaming, yo, they're like in my Starbucks, in my gated community, get them out of here. And it's like, wait, you were okay with them going somewhere else, but not in your house. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember that? This is it. Remember when Laura Loomer took occupation of Nancy Pelosi's house with Im illegal immigrants and said, hey, I'm bringing them here. I need somewhere to go. I need to park my ass. Why don't we park them there? Where are they going? Question is, they're coming in, but who are there? What, what did she call them? Qualified sponsors. This report is even better. I liked it better, obviously, because I, I, you know, I love Harris. So let's go. This was so good. So good. Jetting them from Texas to New York in the cover of night. All this leading critics to wonder why the Biden administration would need this kind of covert operation if it had nothing to hide. This is Outnumbered. I'm Emily Campagno. I'm joined by my co-host Harris Faulkner and Kaylee McEnany, Fox News Headlines 24-7 reporter Carly Shimkus, and in the center virtual seat, Fox and Friends Enterprise reporter Lawrence Jones. Now, the charter flights from Texas reportedly underway since August with some of the planes touching down in Florida and dropping off dozens of migrants there before heading to New York to resettle the others, busing them to nearby locations. This comes as leaked documents detail the staggering catch and release numbers under the Biden administration, showing that since the beginning of August, tens of thousands of migrants have been released into the U.S. with little or no oversight. All this as we, as usual, still await the official border numbers from last month. And Senator Ted Cruz says it's clear the president's policies are responsible for the border crisis. Well, their entire political strategy is based on secrecy. What, what is happening at our southern border is an absolute tragedy. We've had over 1.3 million people cross illegally. We're on a path to have over 2 million people cross. And, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris caused this. And their entire strategy is ignore it. And they're counting on the corrupt corporate media to ignore it as well. So, of course, they fly in the middle of the night because they have no defense. Lawrence, you recently came back from the Texas border. Now, was it common knowledge down there where the migrants were being flown to? Um, they knew they were going on planes, but they didn't know exactly uh, the origin uh, the destination that they were heading to. So uh, our people on the ground have long suspected this. Look, as someone that was just there embedded with the Texas Special Operations Unit, they're, they're really the ones that are on the front, front of lines of this fight. Uh, 
you know, the Border Patrol aren't allowed to do their job. So Texas is doing the rest and then handing them over to Border Patrol. The big question is, why should the American people care about this issue? Of course, there are laws being broken, but I think the larger conversation is the cartel. This is all a part of the criminal enterprise that the cartel uh, now feel emboldened. They just fired off two shots last week at our National Guard. Uh, the same pathway that they use to have people pay to play to get across the borders the same way that the drugs are traffic and human uh, trafficking is going through as well. And right now, the reason why they feel like they can get away with this is because the Biden administration behind the scenes will admit to Border Patrol uh, in Texas that there is a crisis. But when they get in front of the cameras, they say something much different. Um, in Panama right now, there are 30,000 uh, migrants waiting to cross the border. And Texas DPS estimate that they'll cross back to the sector or the RGV sector within three weeks. So obviously the Biden administration hasn't learned from the Haitian crisis that happened a few weeks ago. They were warned back in June and did nothing. This is part two. And if you wonder why uh, Democrat seats uh, that are on the local area uh, of Texas are flipping to Republican, this is the reason. Because it's not a, a, a political thing for them. It is about safety. I interviewed a guy crossing the border last week. And uh, when it came, uh, when the DPS was processing him, I said, you know, what is, did you, did you get a record? He said that he was deported under Donald Trump. He said, look, the former president just deported me because of my driver's license. We ran his background. He was wanted in three states, had domestic violence uh, abuse charges as well, and told me that he was going to go see his next wife. So that's what we're dealing with. Uh, am I saying that all the folks that are crossing the border are criminals? No, but we yeah. don't know all the people that are crossing. And I think Americans are, are frustrated with this issue as well as Democrats as well. Oh, that's exactly right. So, Carly, let's break this down for a second. Top to bottom. So our president is using secret flights to small airports to move unaccompanied illegal migrants, yeah. children, right? Yeah. And the reason that he's doing it in secret, one can presume, is so that no one knows about it. And to Lawrence's point, you know, who does know about it are the people in Central and South America. And that's why they are paying smugglers to take their children on this perilous journey north to get onto these planes and then be distributed everywhere. And we, know, we are waiting for the border numbers, the border encounter numbers, like I mentioned earlier, but the numbers that we do have the amount of encounters between Border Patrol and unaccompanied mi migrant children are enough to fill Madison Square Garden every month in succession, Carly. Oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this the, the situation with the flights, um, I guess, shouldn't come as a surprise because the Biden administration did this in May. They were sending flights um, filled with migrant children. But um in the middle of the night, and yep. those flights were landing in Tennessee. And I think what's happening is uh, the Biden administration is really caught off guard with how just how unpopular their immigration policies are. And I say that they're caught off guard because and I guess to President Biden's credit, he told the American people that he was going to do this. I mean, he mm -hmm. ran on the platform of reversing President Trump's policies on immigration. And during the Democratic debate, when he was asked if his health care plan would provide coverage for illegal immigrants, his hand shot up along with everybody else. So the American people knew what they were getting when they voted for him. And now they see what it looks like and they don't like it. And a lot of even Democrats, because his poll numbers are 23 percent approval on immigration and border issues. That means that a lot of Democrats are missing President Trump's policies, which is wild 
because he was vilified for those policies. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say on this is that this is really the first time that our country has had an open border. I mean, even President Obama, he was labeled the deporter in chief. And all it takes is one horrific situation where a border patrol agent, God forbid, gets shot or there's another, God forbid, Kate Steinle situation. And the Biden administration is really going to have to face what they've created. Yes, and Harris, you know, we talked earlier about the catch and release aspect to this as well. Uh, the former patrol, border patrol chief, border patrol chief Rodney Scott, who served under the Biden administration, he told Fox, he says, this administration is abusing the system. He said, when I was sector chief, we granted five to 10 paroles a year. He said the Biden administration has granted 32,000 in two months. Yeah, so the, the main question is why? Right. That's the main question. I don't know that Jin Psaki is going to approach that answer. We can't approach Biden or Kamala Harris. So if there's no approaching <laughs> and no answers and no and because we know we got her. plenty of questions, I, I don't know you f how you find out why. And if you don't know the why, you can't stop it. I freaking love Harris. Why are they transporting all these kids? Why are they doing this now? That is a question everyone should ask. Why? 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 Their parents. So you mean their parents? You've brought in parents that would fill a whole stadium of Madison Square Garden every month, park them, and then you're bringing the kids? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound, the math doesn't sound right. Hmm. Hey, they say fuck Joe Biden? No, sir. They say let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. Are you saying fuck Joe Biden or let's go Brandon? Fuck Joe Biden! I was saying let's go Brandon. Great little Simpsons rendition there, right? Great one there. So we're going to cut for a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about stuff that we don't really talk about. Um, things that make you go, hmm. Things that make you wonder what is really going on things of you know hey was this really happening is this really happening how can i interpret this there are so many people with so many questions and hopefully i can answer some of them well not answer them that would be wrong perspective maybe hypotheticals i guess Saudi. 
around me. It's fluoride in the water, but nobody know that. It's also a prominent ingredient in Prozac. For real? How could any government bestow that? Apply people who believe in political throwback. That's not all that I'm here to present you. I know about the black Pope in Solomon's temple. Yeah. About the Vatican assassins and how they will get you. And how they clone Barack Hussein Obama in a test tube. It's like we all know what's going down, but no one's saying to what happened to the home of the brave. These motherfuckers, they can doing this now. And no one's talking about how they made us out of these slaves. And everybody's just walking around, heading the crowds who want to wake up to a dead in the grave. But then it's too late, we need to be ready to raise up. Welcome to the end of day. I know that a lot of people think that Tom McDonald, Dax, and Lance were the first, you know, political rappers and cutting through. But even rap artists that are on Billboard charts have been trying and trying to speak and say. And, you know, Wu-Tang, think, why did the FBI really want that Wu-Tang? You're not listening to the in-between. Think, why would the FBI go nuts over that Wu-Tang album that Martin Shkreli had? No one pays attention. Yeah, it's totally normal that they're going to confiscate that after they've thrown him in jail. You know, or how many of these people have spoken up? And when they were too far gone, they just didn't use their, they just didn't, clone lines don't matter. You know what I'm saying? So this is, uh, this has always been out there. Always been out there. You just didn't have the ears to hear it. And obviously a lot of you were like, I don't like the language. I don't like this. Well, you know what? Curtailing your language when you're angry gives us the shit we're in right now. Because one thing that they're right about is they don't want you doing anything. First, you got to get angry. First, you have to get angry and then you can do more once you're angry. Okay. You got to get angry first. If you're not angry, then, then you're not getting it. Now I want to start off with, um, a little bit of, you know, theology. I love it, right? I've studied every single religion, not officially. I don't have a degree in it, but I was having, an inner discussion, I would say, with myself, because um, I have been struggling a lot uh, watching these airplanes. And I know a lot of people are like, Monkey Works is watching. There's a specific group of planes that has not been spotted that are very important. And I have been praying that, you know, our nation will come back to what was spoken by the, by, um, as stated in Revelation 14, 14, 8. So everyone reads the revelations in their way and doesn't take a step back on the moon to watch. It's always a bigger picture. People think it's tomorrow, it's today, tomorrow, it's today. And a lot of people have been let down thinking, oh, it's now. Oh, it's now. This has been done throughout history. But what they don't realize is that books that have been sequestered and eliminated from all scriptures, from all walks of life and religions, the one thing stays consistent, and that is the message of the angels, right? So it is said in 1467 that to prepare people to stand in the day of God, a great work of reform was supposed to be accomplished because God saw that many of his people uh, were not building for eternity and in his mercy, they were working for other things. 
And this was most prevalent in the times of Jesus, actually. And now I'm not saying he was an angel. You don't know, right, um, how things are interpreted and how they're written, right, from before Jesus, okay? But it was said that there would be a message that would be delivered and it would be considered an everlasting gospel. And this is something that we've seen. If you look at timelines from 0 AD, as they've declared it, until today, one thing has remained consistent, and that is Christianity, right? One thing has remained consistent. So the first angel is this everlasting gospel, which is the Bible. It doesn't have to be a real angel, right? You can't define what that means. An angel could be a figure. It could be a message of an angel because it's just a message in scripture, right? The second message in scripture is stated to be um, uh, one that tells you that Babylon has fallen and that the, and you know, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And out of that Babylon, if and when it fell in the 1700s, was when there was a new nation that arose. A new nation arose after the fall of Babylon. That was the beginning of the end. Just because it fell doesn't mean it fell down completely. It could still be falling. But it fell when the idea of upholding the word of God, to have one nation under God, arise. When something falls, when a kingdom has fallen, it doesn't fall right away. It's not like, oops, you tripped, you place planted. It happens carefully. See, a lot of people misinterpret things and, uh, you know, and say things. I'm not saying that I'm right. Okay, I'm not saying that I'm right. But what I'm trying to say is if you take a step back and you look, you know, there's many things that correlate. But in 1776, there was a distinct trip up of a global empire. Many of you believe that you understand history in that sense, right? But that little horn <laughs> was the one that was separated and America was created under God and it's still falling and it's gasping for air. But the third one that came down in a very loud voice, that if any man worships the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, that could be arm, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark in his name. So I'm going to show you this clip. Having said that, so maybe, hmm. So again, let's put some context in. We're not, we're not Bible scholars. I know some people on this channel have 
attended theology school. But I want you to think. So the first one was written word that echoes the gospel. That's number one. So the Bible was the first message. The second one was what? The beginning of the fall of Babylon, which was of great empires. And we're going to talk about it because the beginning of their fall didn't happen until the severance. So it was like they were walking toward the end of the cliff. They just didn't get to the cliff. Okay. Yet they were really messing things up. You think warfare that we have now, I've demonstrated to you how disease has been used in the past before in times that you believe that it couldn't be used and it was. So I'm going to take you to what they coin as the worst thing in history, just so you can see what kind of tricks they have in their magic hat. So number two was the fall of Babylon. So you have to stand back and see it. Don't expect one person to be that angel that tells you, okay? Think outside the box that church has put you in, right? Remember, I, I'm not against churches, but as you can see, the churches are against you. They do not embrace us anymore. I'm speaking for my church, right? The church, my church. So if people actually read old scriptures and you think about it for a second, okay, second one could be the fall of Babylon. Falling down doesn't happen from one minute to another. I mean, it usually does, but not in regimes. They don't crumble like that. You saw that it took them over five years to take out a nation with a lot of pressure. So how do you take down Babylon across the lands? That's one. And out of that derived a nation that was so strong in faith that it incorporated itself under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And the minute that was signed, there was already a plan on how to use it to amplify the destruction. What better way than to, to dis destroy everything? Now, the third, which is taking the seal and the mark in his name, is it one person? You know, a lot of people are like, Obama's the Antichrist. No, it was Bush. No, it was this. It was that. Stop. It's Soros. It's Rothschild. Stop. Why does it have to be one person? Can it not be an idea? Can an idea not be personified in how people act? What is it that they have blindly accepted? more than what their body is. They know that this vaccine is gene therapy. Gene therapy has one purpose, and that purpose is to change your DNA. You were created in his image. Therefore, gene therapy does what? It changes his DNA. The DNA that we were created with, whoever your God is, you were created in their image. And therefore, it is being altered. Again, at that point, it is a knowledgeable choice. Knowledgeable choice. I shared a video of a monk who dedicated his life from a very young age who expressed what he went through because he actually trusted science, trusted man, trusted. And he expressed his journey and how he doesn't feel the same. 
I have shown you audio and video of a DARPA project where we were deploying it and studying the science of silencing the God gene. What makes people religious? Because we wanted to stop, you know, radical Islamic terrorism that didn't really, really exist. Some of them, the newer ones, the younger ones, yes, trained from youth. I mean, if you're trained from a youth to think like that and you're groomed like that, you're going to think like that. But the adults that groomed them didn't think like that. They were paid to train others to think like that. So a lot of people are like, that's Bill Gates. It's not fucking Bill Gates, okay? It's a guy that sits at the DOD. He has a contract with the DOD. He's a scientist. So they created a fanatic religion, hoping that could be a great excuse to be able to undercover and seal, create a vaccine, gene therapy, gene therapy, that will alter people from wanting to believe in God. So all of these things together kind of tell you like the messages are here, okay? If you're looking from a distance, I just want you to sit back and have a distance in the way you see things. But many of you have messaged me and we all see the same sky. The moon looks weird. The sun looks weird. This looks weird. I'm going to tell you, this has happened before. And it was at the time where the fall had just begun. Why? Because the most evil personification of a leader had come to power. I've talked to you many times on how the empire of Greece or Rome began to fall. And it was at the time where they were pushing liberalism, open borders. And I've explained, yep, you know, they had a lot of people migrate from Mongolia. They have bacteria. They don't have there. It was a great vessel to bring disease. But who gave that idea? Who gave that idea? So uh, while many will sit and say 2020 was shit, 2021 is even shittier. Well, there's a period in time, and I've mentioned this before, that a lot of us don't know, like what's been going on in the 400s, in the 500s, in the 600s. We got like some stuff, you know, recorded, but we're not really sure. And the Brits had like these wild names, you know, like Senewolf, right? That was their name. They had places like Mercia. And and I'm, I mean, there's things that aren't written, but I can talk to you for hours about. So it was a fascinating time. It was the time that you say so is sure that you know that every morning you wake up, you will see the sun. But there was a period of time where there was some insane occurrence where a volcano went up. The sun shifted, the moon shifted, and it got really cold. So, you know, there's a video for that, and it's wrong on the time specific, kind of correct. Because it came during the time of Procopius. Procopius, believe it or not. I have had this argument for decades with spiritual leaders um, in my church. I actually had this conversation with an imam in Iraq, right? And I, I totally love picking their brains. Um, <clears throat> and an Orthodox Jew, and I was just talking about his story and how fucked up it is that, that he was sainted, right? When he was one of the first OGs of PSYOPs. Did you also know that Procopius 
was the one that edited a gospel called Q, removed it. Did you know that? Did you know about that? That was before Christ, right? Did you know that? All right. It was cut out. It was actually cut out because he was like, yo, we got to fix, you know, Christianity. We can't have people thinking that someone knew about this before Jesus was here. So um, we're going to, you know, kind of alter Matthew stuff to align with a few things. That's why you'll see that the, the book that he removed was that. But we're not going to talk about religion today. Today we're talking history. But I'm just giving you a little bit because Procopius actually became a saint. So fucked up. So fucked up. And that's about the time that the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, historical Christian Church were at it, right? Um, really at it. The, they wanted, you know, nope, we got the Pope. We're going to have a guy and he's going to be like the God on the planet. They were like, no, dude, no one's going to buy that shit. We're not doing it. You can't tell them not to have sex. You know, this is a problem. They're sinners. Nope, all my priests are saints. This is why. We have what we have now, right? Um, all my priests, because they have access to kids all the time. Like, what would they do? Um, you know, no. And that's where the Christian church started to split. And then after that became the Protestants, the Lutherans, and then it just branched out because the original OG church got corrupt too. So instead of talking about the religious part today, we're going to see the glimpses from the historian part. And we're going to go to Emperor Justinian. And this is how you're going to see, because I can tell you what I know, but you need to see it because history is written by the winners and good has not been winning for a very long time. So your first angel spoke right after his death. Your second one came with your nation and your third one is loud and freaking clear. It hasn't been louder than this in forever in a day. So let's get to it. Um, it's not, it's not a long video. It's quite short. Um, it's like 11 minutes, but there's, uh, corrections that I'm going to make corrections that I've, <laughs> I am so pissed. I found one person kind of talking about it, but he was like showing all the porn and stuff. So I couldn't do it. Even though if it was like, either, even though it was drawings, he really went into it. So I couldn't show that. So let's go. The term worst year ever gets tossed around a lot these days, mostly on the internet. And for reasons like I was disappointed in the latest Star Wars movie. But scientists and historians have actually argued that no year in the long history of this planet was worse than the year 536. While, sure, there have been plenty of worthy contenders for the worst year ever over the course of history, no single year has had more of a measurably bad impact for the decades that followed. Today, we're going to explain why the year 536 was the worst year to be alive. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the Weird History channel. Oh, and leave a comment, too, and let us know what piece of history you would like us to explain next. Okay, now let's settle this once and for all. Year 536. Worst year ever. While serving as a military advisor to Belisarius, one of the Byzantine Empire's most distinguished generals, Byzantine historian Procopius noticed some trouble was brewing in the air while traveling with his boss in Sicily in the year 536. He wrote of a sun that gave forth light without brightness, during like the moon, during this whole year, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse. 
for the beams it shed were not clear, nor such as it is accustomed to shed. Translated, it was all dark outside, like, all the time. He, of course, wasn't the only one to notice the sun appeared to be in a mood during 536. Michael the Syrian, a Byzantine scribe, would later write of this period, The sun became dark, and its darkness lasted for 18 months. Each day it shone for about four hours, and still this light was only a feeble shadow. Everyone declared that this sun would never recover its full light. The fruits did not ripen, and the wine tasted like sour grapes. This wishy-washy sun situation cast a non-metaphorical dark cloud over the globe that darkened the sky for at least a full year in 536. Researchers later discovered evidence of a massive volcanic eruption, whose ash was likely a major contributor to the Seattle-like weather, minus all the rain, spreading ash and destruction on a global scale. Not to mention it made the grapes sour and the wine bad. So that's an easy strike for the year 536. Basic biology teaches us that plants need the sun to aid in their growth and survival. So not having direct sunlight for the duration of at least a year did a real number on the crop output around the world and sparked a widespread famine around the globe. And it's not just that the plants wanted to catch their rays, it was just too darn chilly for crops to grow. With the sun cloaked in an endless cloud, the temperature of the earth dropped between 1.6 and 2.5 degrees Celsius, or 34.88 to 36.5 degrees Fahrenheit, for all the Americans thinking that doesn't sound so bad. But it also cooled temperatures for decades to come. Crop scarcities were reported far and wide around this time period, including Ireland, who suffered through their own horrible-sounding food depletion they called bread failure. A dusty veil covering the sun wasn't the only bad thing in the air for these poor people just trying to live their lives in 536. There was also a plague or two waiting in the wings to strike on these vitamin D-deprived immune systems. Nobody was immune to this infestation. It swept through the lower classes all the way to the imperial palace. Symptoms, as it was lovingly described, began with a sore that formed on the palm of the hand and progressed until the afflicted one could not take a step. The legs swelled, then the buboes burst and pus came out. Obviously, if this same plague were to infect the world today, there would probably be a TV show called Dr. Bubos, Pus Buster, and with it, a new contender for the worst year to be alive. With the plague beginning to make the rounds in Constantinople, the city began to stink, what with the piles of dead, sick bodies just sort of being tossed around into the sea only to resurface later. There wasn't a lot of burial planning going around back then. Bring out your dead! It was more of a wing-it vibe around the Justinian plague. Emperor Justinian ordered the bodies to be removed from the city. I'm not dead! Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. But all that did was expose more people to the disease, as healthy people were responsible for moving deceased sickly bodies out of the cities. Things weren't all bad for Emperor Justinian, though, as the plague that took all of these lives and made the city a smelly nightmare would later be named the Plague of Justinian. So that was probably nice for him. Less so for the estimated 50 million people that died from it, however. Around 536, the climate in China started its journey into madness, doing perfectly normal things like raining dust you could scoop into your hands. Not only should it not rain dust, it certainly shouldn't be measurable by the scoopful. The Nan Shi, a 6th century chronicle, reported a yellow ash-like substance falling from the sky. They named their freak weather Hui, or dust, and said it was yellow in color. Whether this was volcanic ash or just some random, unexplained climate reaction is not known. However, this was just the beginning of China's climate disruption. 
The Chronicles of the Southern Dynasties reported on a rare summer-winter weather event with frost in the midsummer and snow in August. Like a Southern California girl in Chicago in January, the crops were not here for this cold snap. Summer crops were destroyed, and the city of Xinchou, along with others, were thrown into a deadly famine that lasted for two years and resulted in the deaths of around 70 to 80 percent of the population. Researchers discovered evidence deep in the ice sheets of Iceland and Greenland that indicated a major volcanic event occurred around 536. Volcanic eruptions in Iceland in 540 and 547 thrust people into the literal dark ages. With ash lining the skies and blocking out the shiny hot sun thing in the sky that the people of the 6th century were starting to get used to having around. Based on a tropical volcanic ash later discovered, some scholars have suggested a volcano in El Salvador went blasting off around the year 535 or 536. Still others pointed to a volcanic eruption in North America as a contributor to the dark skies around the world. When combined with the two Icelandic volcano eruptions, it kicked off what was adorably called the Late Antique Little Ice Age. This cute little ice age cooled off the planet for at least a decade and resulted in the death of crops and subsequently people. Both directly through starvation and indirectly, a malnourished population was more susceptible to diseases, of which there were plenty running around. Well, there's one thing that certainly couldn't claim it had a bad year, exploding volcanoes. By the time the 6th century rolled around, the Roman Empire had migrated east to Constantinople. And, under the guiding hand of Emperor Justinian, the Romans sought to get back to the glory days of the empire. Much like a high school graduate who still hangs around campus and wears their letterman jacket, I mean, it is pretty cool. Though some of Justinian's generals saw success in this cool goal, most notable Belisarius, who fought against several different armies, including Goths, Vandals, and others, Justinian himself couldn't mirror the success due to constant uprisings and imperial instability. Those pesky uprisings always getting in the way of success. To add sickness to war defeats, the Byzantine Empire would never fully recover from the disease and famine sparked by the events of 536. The Byzantine Empire lost between 35 to 55 percent of their population in the year 541, once the bubonic plague moved in and did what the plague did best, kill depressingly high percentages of entire populations. Historians believe the plague could have been transported by plague-infested rats hitching a ride on military trains during this attempt to bring the Roman Empire back to its peak which clearly backfired. The horribleness of 536 didn't discriminate. The Moshe civilization of Peru wouldn't count 536 as their banner year either. The Moshe civilization, a once dominant force in the region, were known to be avid fishermen and developers of an advanced irrigation system that allowed a variety of crops to grow. Their agricultural talents were the backbone of their economy, but the weather conditions in the 6th century caused their pocketbooks to take a deep hit. It was around this time that an unusually strong El Nino weather system caused waters to warm, which decimated the fish supply. The freak weather system also caused heavy flooding, which ruined their irrigation systems and devastated their ability to grow enough food to feed their people. Probably tired of listening to Twitter users claim Axe and Axe was the worst year ever, a group of scholars set out to set the record straight once and for all. Harvard historian Michael McCormick and a group of scholars decided to science their way out of the age-old question, what was the worst year to be alive? Initially, however, this was not the ultimate goal of McCormick and his group of 12 interdisciplinary scholars. The group came together to study metal usage, coinage, and changes to the 7th century monetary systems. 
Somewhere in this thrilling subject matter, one probably began to ponder if they were living in the worst year to be alive. Their findings included an analysis of volcanic fragments from an Icelandic volcano in ice core samples from Swiss glaciers that, yes, dated back to 536, confirming the volcanic event that thrusted a good portion of the northern hemisphere into unprecedented darkness, setting off a global catastrophe. Yeah, but in 1998, both Armageddon and Deep Impact were released, and people had to choose between which two asteroid-based action movies they liked best. That's a tough year. The planet left behind plenty of evidence of climate trauma that resulted in a chain of climate events that spiraled over into real human suffering. Remember, we only get one Earth, everyone. Please recycle. Dendrochronologists, people who study tree rings to determine a tree's age, since that's a science and not a wild guess, noticed some disturbing patterns emerging when examining Icelandic trees. The rings indicated a period when the tree's growth had slowed, suggesting a significant cooldown had occurred around the middle of the 6th century. This, combined with the newly unearthed ice core evidence discovered in 2018, helped date the time of the catastrophic event that ruined Earth for a little bit, to the year 536. In researching for the worst year to be alive, things weren't always so bleak. In fact, the research started by our friends at Harvard ended on a positive note. While the events of 536 were the spark for some truly literal dark days in our planet's history, the researchers were also able to find the moments things really started to turn around. When researching coinage, they noticed the reappearance of lead in the ice core samples indicating that people were producing silver again for money. Ah, capitalism, the life force of us all. Experts argued the prevalence of silver meant more coins were being produced, which was a sign of a thriving economy. The lesson being, as bad as it may seem, it will almost always get better. Almost always. So what do you think? Would you like to go into a time machine and play the ultimate game of Survivor? Let us know in the comments below, and while you're at it, check... So, now that we've seen what this was, I'll explain to you. So, nobody knows where this volcano came from. They claim it's a volcano because of the ash, the yellow ash. Hmm. So they're saying that it came from El Salvador um, and that it was um, El Salvador's Yopango that was responsible for the Earth's cooling, right? And that the plague of Jam Justinian happened then. But what history misses and geologists misses is, you know, nobody ever has full knowledge, Okay. Nobody has full knowledge of anything. If you're a geologist, you know, geology, if you know, uh, you know, medicine, you know, medicine, you don't know both because you're either full or you're empty. Right. So this is why it's important that you take a step back. So apparently recent research, uh, uh found that there were two volcanoes. So interesting. Back to back. Uh, they suspected that it came from El Salvador, which filled the whole atmosphere with ash. But, you know, no one's been able to find it. Like, if you had an explosion that that big, I mean, look at the Grand Canyon. Like, stop. Okay? Look at some other things. Like, you know, Santorini got screwed completely, and you're only at the tip of the volcano. It almost all went underground. But where would it have to sit, right, in order to mess up the whole, you know, the whole earth? Where it would be in China, in Peru, in the north, in Europe, in Africa. Like, it's got to be sitting at somewhere prime.
So then you have to think geography. Like, what do I know about geography? Maybe it's not all together. This is where we're going to touch upon a little bit about Australia because maybe you're going to understand it. So a lot of people are thinking it's here, there. Do you know, no. If you can't see it, it's obviously not in your purview. And it's in one place where Google Earth just tells you it's water when it should be eyes. I'm just saying, I, I guess, hypothetically. But the question here that everyone should be thinking of is, so this was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire because it became that great Justinian Empire, which was the mark. That's where it started. That's where Christianity was changing. That's where Procopius came out. You know, Procopius, Procopi means to do something that's good, right? Structured good though. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm doing good. It means like I'm doing a structured, instructed good. So one thing that people, you know, don't know about Justinian is that his um, queen, Theodora, was actually a whore. Um, she was shameless. Um, she would, she wouldn't, she had no talents. You know, when, when women during that time, um, were kids, they'd learn how to play the cello or cook or dance or something. She was super hot, but she was very street smart because she slept with a lot of dudes and she learned a lot of things. And cause she was so hot, right. Um, she had that ability to be charming. But, you know, not a lot of people know this stuff because this is written in texts that don't talk to each other. It's like a geologist or white, uh, a theologist will write, a historian will write. And, you know, somebody else will write about the prostitutes of Turkey and Greece and in Italy, right, where they were roaming around in Egypt. So a lot's not known. Theodora was the reason uh, the Roman Empire fell. She had become, she began her life, you know, as a heathen. And in the end, she put the nail in the coffin. Now, many will say she didn't do it on purpose, right? But here's the thing. The person that approached her was so evil, Procopius. This is why I argue his saintism. He was the historian that documented that dark period. He was that historian that put everything together. And he was the one that introduced Justinian to his future wife. And it was because she approached him and because he believed that she would elevate him. He put her next to him, but instead that was a boomerang. She began to put that nail on the coffin. This is then when everything came up, you know, things changed. And after 500 years, the Pope had completely settled and you know, took his reign as they thought was successful, only to know that the accelerated oppression and the use of technology, or I guess death against the people wasn't working. Rebellion started to happen almost every 50 years uh, throughout Europe. So uh, there is a video that was done by a gentleman talking about um, the Byzantine Empire, Justinian and Theodora, and he calls it lies of extra history. And even though he doesn't get all of it correct, I was actually quite surprised that he got the majority. And why am I showing you this? Again, parallels, understanding. History doesn't really repeat itself, but I'll tell you what, it emulates the past very well since it's the same scenario. So tired of it.
so tired of it. It's like just a 2.0 version, 3.0 version, 4.0 version. We're like at like 17 right now. So it's like so tiring. So this will give you a little bit of insight to understand um, how he ruled during that time where there was a cold summer, a dark winter, where there was famine. And obviously at that time, could you imagine if everyone was on solar energy? They'd have no power. We definitely need that gas. If something like that happened, shit, we'll be happy to be drilling away. We would be able to have greenhouses, right? And all, you know, um, fake lights. But if we're doing lab-grown meat and only plants and only solar, we're screwed. I'm just saying. So here's where we're going to see some more history. But the lies of history. Hello everyone, welcome to Lies, the part of Extra History where I get to tell you all the stories that we couldn't fit into the script and we confess to all the places where we screwed up. Uh, and we've got a couple for you this time. Uh, but first off, Walpole. You might have noticed the where's Walpole moment in the videos. Oh, we ain't done with Walpole yet. We were all cracking up about how this guy had his hands in everything. And so I said, I bet we can connect Walpole to every other topic. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that, but I certainly can with the day's episodes. So if you want to play Five Degrees of Walpole with me, join in, and at this end of the episode, I will tell you my answer. I think you'll get a kick out of how directly he was connected with the making of this series. Uh, but on to serious stuff. We have a few major things to clear up. In episode two, we showed the Hagia Sophia with minarets. This killed me when I saw it. But, on the other hand, it does allow me to spend a lot of this episode talking about the awesome history of the Hagia Sophia, so let's go for it. The Hagia Sophia is this architectural marvel. If you ever get the chance, you should go to uh, Istanbul and see it. Uh, it was indubitably the world's most impressive church at the time of its construction. And simply to be built, they had to invent all these new construction techniques. What's more is the speed at which they built it is just unbelievable. It took six years, six years, without modern machinery, to build this radically new church. St. Peter's, built almost a thousand years later, took like 120 years to complete. And the Sagrada Familia has been under construction for more than 140 years and still not done. But all this haste had its cost. The mortar in the walls wasn't even dry by the time they tried putting up the dome. And so it actually bent the walls and the original dome collapsed within 40 years to have to be replaced by a future generation. This to me always makes the Hagia Sophia the perfect metaphor for Justinian's reign, right? Ambitious, inspiring, leaving a permanent mark in humanity, and yet in some ways fatally flawed because of its haste and overreach. Uh, yet the Hagia Sophia, despite its flaws, serves as an inspiration for the centuries, uh, being studied during the Renaissance all the way through to today. And when the Ottoman forces captured Constantinople, the Hagia Sophia was ordered spared and converted into a mosque, and hence the minarets you saw around it and that you can see around it today. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan, a thousand years after the construction of the Hagia Sophia, decided to prove his power by showing that his empire could build something as grand as this thing built a millennium before, right? And erected the Blue Mosque a mere block away. And when the Ottomans fell, Hagia Sophia outlasted them too and was turned into a museum by the secularizing Turkish state. There's 
One more correction in the art that I'd like to make. In episode four, when we talk about Belisarius' triumph, we probably should have shown him also with a menorah. Because according to Procopius, Belisarius showed up with the menorah. Yep, the one that's supposed to have burnt for eight days on one day's oil. Again, so I am going to show you the more uh, aggressive one that talks about the lies. But this episode, if you have the time to watch Extra History, you should watch it only because it shows Chrislam. It had Christianity, Islam, uh, and Judaism all in one bundle, uh, which was so bizarre. <laughs> you know, that's when it fell. That's when the empire took a turn to the more liberal. Obviously, they were more advanced in Middle Europe, right? Remember when the Greeks in 4000 BC and the Egyptians were having, you know, they had toilets. They had actual running water and a sewage system. You know, the, the Brits and the rest of them were swinging from trees still. You know what I mean? So it was completely different. Um, in regards to the development. So what happened was whatever influence the northern part of Europe had, uh, it was being influenced through the papacy um, in a very subtle way, uh, bringing in uh, this uh, Roman Catholicism. And, you know, the southern and eastern part and Middle Eastern area of Europe was more evolved as people. Uh, they accepted immigration. They were totally fine with things. But then they were fighting because, you know, the Pope had done his business uh, with the whole Islam thing. And the Islamic arch came in and just quashed it completely. But it got a little bit out of control. And it went all the way up to Scotland. And, you know, where there were Roman scriptures... You'll see if you ever go to Scotland and go to their older and oldest buildings that you can find, you'll see Roman baths with Arabic scriptures on them. That's how far they went. And hence Spain got pissed off and the Queen of Spain began the Spanish Inquisition, which is kind of like, let's clean up this mess that we created to annihilate people and sent them away. <laughs> so these are facts. But here's a little bit of real history. And this is why... The secret history of Procopius, uh, you know, the guy that everyone listens to from his historical scriptures, because those are the only ones widely available that talked about. And remember, he was sainted that talked about the period of the dark times. You could take that as you want. I mean, China called it yellow ash. Where did that happen? Was it two volcanoes? Was it something else? You draw your conclusions. How could anyone find words to describe Justinian's character? These vices and many yet greater he clearly possessed to an inhuman degree. It seemed as if nature had removed every tendency to evil from the rest of mankind and deposited it in the soul of this man. He married a wife whose origin and upbringing I must now explain, and how after becoming his consort, she destroyed the Roman state root and branch. In Byzantium, there was a man called Acasius, a keeper of the circus animals, belonging to the green faction and entitled the Bearwood. This man died of sickness while Anastasius occupied the imperial throne 
leaving three daughters, Comito, Theodora, and Anastasia, of whom the eldest had not yet completed her seventh year. When the children were old enough, they were at once put on the stage there by their mother, as their appearance was very attractive, not all at the same time, however, but as each one seemed to her to be mature enough for this profession. The eldest one, Comito, was already one of the most popular harlots of the day. Theodora, who came next, clad in a little tunic with long sleeves, the usual dress of a slave girl, used to assist her in various ways. For the time being, Theodora was still too undeveloped to be capable of sharing a man's bed or having intercourse like a woman, but she acted as a sort of male prostitute to satisfy customers of the lowest type, and slaves at that, who, when accompanying their owners to the theatre, seized their opportunity to divert themselves in this revolting manner. And for some considerable time, she remained in a brothel, given up to this unnatural bodily commerce. But as soon as she was old enough and fully developed, she joined the women on the stage and promptly became a courtesan of the type our ancestors called the dregs of the army. For she was not a flautist or a harpist. She was not even qualified to join the corps of dancers, but she merely sold her attractions to anyone who came along, putting her whole body at his disposal. Later, she joined the actors in all the business of the theatre and played a regular part in their stage performances, making herself the butt of their ribald buffoonery. She was extremely clever and had a biting wit, and quickly became popular as a result. There was not a particle of modesty in the little hussy, and no one ever saw her taken aback. She complied with the most outrageous demands, without the slightest hesitation. And she would throw off her clothes and exhibit naked to all and sundry those regions, both in front and behind, which the rules of decency require to be kept veiled and hidden from masculine eyes. She used to tease her lovers by keeping them waiting and by constantly playing about with novel methods of intercourse she could always bring the lascivious to her feet. So far from waiting to be invited by anyone she encountered, she herself, by cracking dirty jokes and wiggling her hips suggestively, would invite all who came her way, especially if they were still in their teens. Never was anyone so completely given up to unlimited self-indulgence. Often she would go to a bring-your-own-food dinner party with ten young men or more, all at the peak of their physical powers. Public. In other words, she likes sex a lot, okay? She fornicated like crazy. But because no one is allowed to appear there absolutely naked, a girdle around the groins is compulsory. With this minimum covering, she would spread herself out and lie face upwards on the floor. Servants, on whom this task had been imposed, would sprinkle barley grains over her private parts, and geese, trained for the purpose, used to pick them off her one by one with their bills and swallow them. Theodora, so far from blushing when she stood up again, actually seemed to be proud of this performance, 
for she was not only shameless herself, but did more than anyone else to encourage shamelessness. Many times she threw off her clothes and stood in the middle of the actors on the stage, leaning over backwards or pushing out her behind to invite both those who had already enjoyed her and those who had not been intimate as yet, parading her own special brand of gymnastics. With such lasciviousness did she misuse her own body that she appeared to have her private parts, not like other women in the place intended by nature, but in her face. And again, those who were intimate with her showed by so doing that they were not having intercourse in accordance with the laws of nature. And every person of any decency who happened to meet her in the forum would swim round and beat a hasty retreat for fear he might come in contact with any of the hussy's garments and so appear tainted with this pollution. For to those who saw her, especially in the early hours of the day, she was a bird of ill omen. Later, she accompanied Hecabalus in order to serve him in the most revolting capacity. In every city following an occupation, which a man had better not name if he hopes ever to enjoy the favor of God, it was as if the unseen powers could not allow any spot on earth to be unaware of Theodora's depravity. Such then was the birth and upbringing of this woman, the subject of common talk among women of the streets and among people of every kind. But when she arrived back in Byzantium, Justinian conceived an overpowering passion for her. So she was also sainted, Saint Theodora. She was also sainted. Now, why do we talk about Theodora? Well, it'll 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 make sense later when it, when all this church stuff comes out. I actually was talking with a friend of mine who's a caterer. She's Greek Orthodox. She's like, "Did you know that we fall under this Chrislam, you know, the the organization?" I said, "Yeah, I know. I put up a really big stink when the Greek Orthodox Church, their factions across the world except for the one in Greece that is old calendar, right?" Uh, started to get together with the Catholic and Islam churches. This is real. I told you about a one world religion coming very soon, two years ago. <laughs> it started two Septembers ago, at 2019 it started. And that is where they signed their first agreement. I said it, uh, but they didn't reveal it until last September, almost two years took them. And now everyone's seeing it. But why am I saying this? Geography is very, very important. And it seems like there's a border that we're not aware of. <laughs> See, they're, they're maps. They're very old maps. And you could say, well, they didn't know any better or anything. But there is a guy who is the Columbus of Australia. Uh, his name is Willem Janzoon. Now, this guy traveled a weird way when he found Australia. Funny story. I should tell you this. But all these volcanoes or... Um, <sighs> bizarre explosions, let's say, that did ashes, happened there in New Guinea and the Philippines. And, you know, it was so weird because all of that was happening, but this guy just happened to be in the middle, you know, this Dutch guy sent by the crown happened to be right there while all these earthquakes and explosions and fires all over the sky, making the sun dark. But then when it settled, it was like, oh my gosh, I found new land. How cool.
And then he found New Zealand and he called it New Zealand and then it became New Zealand. And then he was like, yo, this is dope. Uh, I think I discovered something else. And this was in 1606. 1606. So, uh, you know, what's really weird is it's just, it just so happens that if we look and see where all these changes are happening, it totally makes sense. It's almost as if, you know, you're going to be like, no, 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 no. The Philippines and all of that, they all have borders uh, to the Pacific. It's not like to the South or anything. So, you know, it doesn't make sense the way the historians have written it down, how these things were South, but they're East. So I, you know, I, these are just food for thought. I mean, we're not going to jump into, you know, more geography, but we're going to watch this really cool old video about Australia's Christopher Columbus. I think it'll be pretty cool. Maybe then you'll understand who, what, when, where. Because you know what's funny? <laughs> funny story. Let me let me just tell you the story. So after all of these explosions that happened, right, um, they discovered new land. It was so bizarre because that was when they discovered Greenland, right? And all of these things just appeared that they hadn't seen after all these dark winter shits. Um, people started to discover things. Uh, it was really bizarre. Uh, but, you know, apparently Australia was only discovered um, in 1606, which is after a very massive wave of eruptions. I mean, if it was erupted, then, you know, and that's so funny because Australia has like animals we don't have, totally different than we are. And it just appeared and that guy just happened to be there under direction to just, just take a listen. Australia, the land down under, has emerged with full splendor in the late 20th century. It's paradise to those who live here, a great escape to those who come to share its vast and beautiful countryside. International Video Network welcomes you on this video visit to the great southern continent of Australia as we unfold the secrets of the land down under. That's a lie. Australia is a land of contrasts. From the blue-green Indian and Pacific Oceans surrounding the world's largest island, to the hell-hot center, the outback, the dry land. The land down under, an expression coined by Aussies who refer to their seasons running opposite or upside down. And like flip it that way. And then this one over here and flip it that way. Because the way he expressed his journey, right, was super weird, okay? And it was, it was very bizarre. So it's almost as if um, the eastern part of Asia faces south and the western part of the Americas face south. So the um, Alaska and the top of Russia face each other. It's so weird the way they had it. And that Greenland is like right next to like on top of Canada, which actually funny story when I was in Fune, it kind of seemed really weird how, you know, they just told me it was like a thing of lights or something. Um, but it kind of seemed weird um, that we would only fly at night. Um, and uh, in the morning they would tell me it would be like a snow mirage 
that I would think that it was longer. You know, stuff like that happens. They're all mirages, right? So I was just uh, thinking, you know, it was really weird because all this volcanic activity apparently happened over here, right? Over here, um, which is where the Philippines and Papua New and whatever. But for some reason, it happened here and he found New Zealand first and then Australia, right? It's so weird, isn't it? It's like so bizarre. He found New Zealand first and then Australia. And it's like, well, yo, how'd you pass Australia and not see, how'd you pass Australia and not see it and just see New Zealand? It just doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm just pointing, you know, like, how'd you see this area here? Not that, like, what did you like have binoculars that only faced one way. I know they didn't have tech, but I'm just saying, super weird. Compares approximately with that of the continental United States. It has less than one-tenth the population. Located in the southern hemisphere, divided by the Tropic of Capricorn, and surrounded by more than 12,000 miles of shoreline, Australia was the last of the developed continents to be discovered and explored. Dutch sailor Willem Jans made the first confirmed sighting in 1606, but it was one. Willem Jansen was born in 1570. He was educated in navigation in a small port village in Amsterdam where he developed the desire to go to sea. In 1558, Jansen went out to explore for the first time as a cadet. In that time, he witnessed the destruction of the Spanish Armada and decided to pursue defenses. His affair with exploration began when he first sailed as captain to the East Indies. When he returned, he was appointed employee of the Dutch East India Company, or VOC, in 1602. After making his name known to the world, Jansen was granted his very own ship, the Doyston, in 1603. In 1605, orders were given to explore more of the Pacific. Jensen appointed Stephen Vanderhagen as his mate for this journey into the unknown. On November 18, 1605, the crew set out from their trading base in Bantam to the western coast of New Guinea for exploration. Weeks into the journey, they spotted dark land on the horizon and charted it for days. This land was western New Guinea. While making landfall, Jansen and his crew were attacked by natives, leaving eight crew members dead. Jansen then turned south, unknowingly passing through the then undiscovered Torres Strait into Australia. In early 1606, Jansen spotted new landscape. In January of 1606, Jansen landed in Tenafather River the first landing in Australia to be recorded. That's such a lie. He New Zealand was found first. He traveled miles of western coast, making landfall at least five times and taking in beautiful landscapes. After charting over 300 miles, provisions were running, running low and Jan soon decided to turn around in Cape Kiawir in Waipia. They sailed back up the charted coast and landed past their original landfall. Near the end of this trip, Jansen landed in a river north of Waipia, where indigenous people assaulted and killed the first European in Australia. Yeah, they're After this, Jansen decided they needed to head home with what they had 
and returned to Bantam many weeks later with charted lands and newfound glory. Jan soon returned to Australia in 1618, charting new territory there. Ooh, weird map, right? When he returned to the Netherlands, Jansoon served as an admiral of the Dutch defense fleet, sailing to India, Mania, and of course, the East Indies. At the end of his life, Jansoon served as governor of... Yeah, so she is giving you the history they're giving. But in fact, he landed in New Zealand first. And that is what it was. But Terra Australis was found after that. Terra Australis. Here we go. This is pretty, pretty awesome to um, take in. We're just going to watch a few minutes of this, but I want you guys to see the maps. I mean, remember, Plato had a full map with North America on it in 400. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, they had full maps of all the territory and stuff that we've excluded because there's like other islands and stuff that nobody talks about other land masses, but you know, you should look at their maps. It's just like so weird. They were navigating, remember, with sticks and stones, of course. We celebrated the arrival of the first fleet and essentially was part of New Guinea at that time, other than perhaps gold and, and silver. And they couldn't do that, but there were five subsequent companies floated. So each major port city in Holland floated their own company and they all sailed off and came back with lots of spices. But, Inscription in Dutch there, which translates uh, as that. So we can, these are the Bander Islands. So the outward voyage was from Bander to Kai, then to Aru, and then down to the Papuan coast, and then finally down to uh, New Guinea. This little piece of map there. And then the return voyage was up past what is, is now called High Island to the, what's described as the Muddy Banks, then back around New Guinea to uh, Papua. Uh, we got any New Zealanders in the in the audience? Of course, you've noticed that go. New Zealand See? is through. Continental drift explains that. And then back to London. So uh, we'll just look at The continental drift ex explains that. I wanted you guys to just hear it. So this is how they express it, right? It just moved. The whole thing just moved. Because he went to New Zealand first, and then he went to Australia after Papua New Guinea. Uh, after New Guinea and Papua New Guinea... So I, I just want you to understand all of these inconsistencies, continental drift. So from 1606, <laughs> this is from 1606 to 2020. Wait, wait, wait. When did I go? So 19, so 2002 when I was in New Zealand, you know, that, whoa, that's a big continental drift. They must have felt that shit. Stop. Stop. <sighs> So again, I'm just saying, winners write history, and winners also teach you everything. It sucks. It really sucks not to know, but people are starting to know now. People are starting to have better ears and eyes to hear and see things uh, with knowledge and that should always be everyone's primary goal to learn as much as you can because knowledge is power and nobody can tell you what to think. Like I've said, don't even listen to me. Listen to your gut. Listen to your gut and what it tells you. I mean, common sense is kind of, you know, 
gone. By the way, speaking of common sense, want to hear something funny. So I was trying to send some cash app, not cash app. I'm banned from there. Apple pay. I have a feeling that I may be banned from there. I'll tell you why. So I was trying to send some Apple pay, um, uh, yesterday to someone and, um, because I can't talk about it because my daughter listens to these shows, so I can't talk. I'll tell you about it later. But anyway, I was trying to send some Apple Pay, and it wouldn't let me. So <clears throat> I went through this whole, you know, spiel with Apple, and, you know, it wouldn't verify my identity. Um, because apparently if you use Apple Pay, they have to verify your identity because it's kind of like a cash app, but you don't really have a card. It's like a temporary one, right? So I, I put it in there and they're like, yeah, you can't be at a PO box. And I gave a residential address. So it was super weird. So we traveled. So, you know, what was weird is, is that there was no common sense whatsoever. She was like, okay, then you need to use a brand new identification because we cannot use um, a brand new email because we cannot use that email anymore. Um, so change your Apple email. And um, I was like, Okay, I had $3.33 on my Apple Pay balance. So I transferred $3.33 into my account. And then she was like, change your Apple ID. And I was like, um, all my purchases and stuff and my kids' photos and stuff are like saved on that. Are you kidding? And she was like, well, that's the only way. And I was like, no, you have to manually fix it if it tells you the wrong things. So... Um, apparently I may be banned from that one too. I'm, I'm banned everywhere. And I know a lot of people were like, call Dan Bongino's thing. I have. And then they called me and it sounded really weird. And he's like, yeah, what do you want to do with it? How much are you going to be funneling in? And it's like, um, a dollar. Like what kind of questions are those? It's just really weird. So I guess I'm going to stick with barter, right? Barter, right? Cow. Or, you know, <laughs> just crypto. I'm totally on the fringe with all the criminals. Fuck's sake. So anyway, I want to end today's show. Um, I know a lot of you want to hear about Antarctica, but I got close. Um, it's not necessary right now. But what you have to understand is geographically, if, you know, it was like that old map <laughs> where they were like, all facing one way and just so happened to have a lot of volcanoes happen there. And then poof, all this stuff happened. And then like you heard that professor, it was a continental shift that shifted New Zealand like miles away. Right. You have to think the first sectors of this whole lockdown and obedience thing are happening along the same place where all these apparent volcanoes and darkness had befallen upon. But before that, in the 500s, with the beginning of the fall of the empire, there was a massive, nobody saw fire. All they saw was ash. It was yellow in China. It was just soot in other places. It was different colors where it landed. If you listen to Hopi Indians and, um, you know, stories from other civilizations that have come and gone, they talk about the same thing. None of them saw the fucking fires. I mean, if in a, if if El Salvador had you know a big boom like that, it would have been seen. Uh, nothing in El Salvador's history tells you that. So nobody knows where it came from, but apparently it was like something that was definitely on fire. 
super fiery, so fiery that it blacked out the earth. And what, what I wanted, I should have said that earlier to say was that there were, there scriptures from the Aztecs and from some tribes in Guatemala that are like so old. Um, but they talked about, um, uh, death and destruction through the changes in the sky. So before the dark summer and winters came, the two winters and the two, I mean, winter's always dark, but you know what I mean. And summers came that the sun didn't seem right. And they were seeing a lot of things. So, you know, it seems really weird, but obviously that was a really shitty time because it was really dark, but we're kind of lucky, right? In that sense in 2021, because, you know, we've got the technology and raw materials like coal and, and oil um, to help us. Could you imagine if we were all green right now and some shit like that went down? How would the solar panels help us right now? They wouldn't, right? Right, right? They wouldn't. And I'm just thinking. Like if people were definitely on green energy, how would it be uh, working right now? So that was the um, seal of the second message with the fall. So that happened almost concurrently with the gospel, which is weird, which would say the third one, which was, beware, beware of, you know, the Antichrist. You have to just think what that means. Does it mean one person? Is it embodied in one person? Do you really have to see that one person? I mean, do you think God is just one vessel? I, just like you picture them somehow, you know, you see it somehow tangible. Would you see the same for Evil personified, I guess, right? To each his own. To each his own. But you have to see it and what it means and how many times they've psyched the people out with these things. Because you know what you can hear? Bells. Remember that. You're going to hear a lot of bells. So let's start paying attention to the bells. Because the bells are going to tell you more. I hope that helps. Happy birthday to everyone. Happy birthday, Dion. God bless. I've got my bell, I'm 
gonna take you to hell. I'm gonna get you, stop, get you.